back. It is episode 31 of The Build. A certain episode 31 that we'll spend exactly zero time after this talking about another certain 31. You'd think this week we'd be talking a whole lot more about the lead-up to the game against Shane Wright or the late-night-blown lead that we woke up to on Tuesday morning, but nope. The Canadians have a giant PR mess on their hands, a mess I refuse to indulge in any further. Um, You already know what I'm talking about, and that's as far as we're going to go with it on this podcast. Um, Other than to say it is a pretty shameful week for the PR team um, that I do not need to get uh, worked up over, so I refuse. Um, At any rate, (laughs) the Canadians are um, facing a whole bunch of actual real on-ice adversity. Um, Key injuries, some potential trade intrigue um, on the way. Uh, less than stellar play all around. I'd like to think the car with the very loud muffler that just drove by. Um, all of which taking place on a western road trip, which is, there's sort of like petri dishes for just all of this stuff to fester, it seems like. Um, you know who else is facing adversity? Us. Um, whoever decides the NHL schedule should have to answer to uh, questioning. Chief among those questions um, why are you scheduling a 10.30 p.m. start and a 10 p.m. start back-to-back? I, I, I know, like, I know, like when, when, you know, things go, when we go out west, you're going to play some late games. That makes sense. It's never, you know, the, the 10 o'clock start on its face has never really bothered me. There was that weird 11 o'clock start years uh, in the, the Canadian division season where they played against Vancouver at 11 p.m. on a weeknight. Um, but after playing in Vancouver and Seattle, Montreal had three days off. There goes another motorcycle. I'm making a big point and all of these people driving down the street are ruining it. Um, Montreal has three days off before their next game against Los Angeles on Saturday night. And Seattle doesn't play again until Friday night. So you're telling me Montreal and Seattle couldn't be held on Wednesday night. They couldn't have had a rest day in there. Um, I know this is like just big elite East Coast whining, but that's where this team plays. So that should matter for something. I mean, thankfully, like, you know, on weekends, they always kind of acquiesce um, to the West Coast or to the East Coast time. Like when we played, when Montreal played in Edmonton, uh, that was a 7 p.m. start on the East Coast because it's a weekend and, you know, they they expect that people will still be able to attend the game. But like, the NHL just like loves making their sport really difficult for fans to watch. They love it. They love it so much from like when they used to be on the Outdoor Life Network in the States, which then became Versus, which then became NBC Sports Network, and they were playing playoff games on CNBC in between Shark Tank marathons. Um, but like another example of this was last Friday, the the Friday after American Thanksgiving. Um the Montreal Canadiens and three other Canadian teams had afternoon games against American opponents because the the day after Thanksgiving in the United States is typically a day off. It's not a federal holiday. Um, and I know that because I live in America and my wife didn't even have the day off. So, like, they just love making it smart as inaccessible as possible. And then, you know, they do all of this other stuff like, like, bankrolling the Arizona Coyotes because it grows the game. You know what grows the game? Putting it in a situation where people can actually see it. It's pretty helpful. Um, Anyway, that's a big rant that I didn't really need to get into. But 
outside of scheduling quirks, the Canadians have a ton of storylines going at the moment. And I want to start with a chat about the defense. Um, I've talked a lot about the defense on this because I think it's the, the part of this team that has sort of overperformed their expectations the most. And yet it's still not really a, a complete product at the, to this point. Um, and this, this, I'll, I'll be honest, this was entirely stolen from Womax on Twitter at Womax. Um, you know, he tweeted about who he thought the Canadians best defenseman was, and I wanted to go and research it. And I, that's what I did. I wanted to see who to this point is the Canadians best defenseman. And, that question, who is their best defenseman, is tough, and I don't, I don't necessarily like that, 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 um, how we frame that. Best at what? Best at being a defenseman. It's more than just a position to do that, right? Like different defenders do different things well. It's why like the Norris Trophy is such like a strange um, award, because if it's like if it's supposed to be, you know, the defenseman who defends the best it probably would go to like a Jacob Slavin every year whose underlying numbers are really fantastic, right? Or, you know, a Victor Hedman who wins it a fair a fair share and is always seemingly in that conversation. But seemingly it always goes to the highest scoring defenseman. So it's, you know, I think that as a sport, we have a hard time categorizing who the best defenseman in the sport is, let alone on any given team. Um, so I think... And, and to pair with that, you know, I, I don't think the Canadians have a f truly all-around elite defenseman at the moment. So I don't think that question, who is the best Canadian defenseman on the Canadians, really has an answer. Um, because I don't think any of them have been spectacular. Um, you know, Caden Gooley and, and Harris are obviously punching well above their weight, but it's sort of like, you know, they're they're doing a great job based on what they're expectations were going into this season and you know we're, we're going to hope that they keep growing um but as we'll get into in a little bit the numbers kind of point away from them as far as who who that that number one defenseman is on this team um what Womax landed on was you know for that answer was that it was Mike Matheson um and I don't think that I don't think that he's that Womax is wrong in saying that that he is the Canadian's best defenseman but I think the question that matters more in my head is which defenseman provides the most on-ice value. Um, maybe that's splitting hairs, but I think that distinction matters in what I want to talk about. Which Canadians blue liner enters, you know, difficult game scripts or like, you know, difficult situations and and seemingly leaves the team in better shape when, than, than when he started his shift. And going through that thought process, I still landed on Mike Matheson. So it really doesn't matter how you ask that question. Right now, the answer is clear for the Canadians. I know fans are kind of all over him for falling and giving up the game-winning goal in the Vancouver game. Ice is slippery. Sometimes guys fall down. I'm never really going to hold falling down against a guy. Like I, I don't understand how that can be part of analyzing a play. That's just falling happens from time to time. But since I started looking at I started looking at all of the numbers for all of the Canadians defensemen since November 19th because that was when Matheson made his Canadians debut at home against the Philadelphia Flyers and since that time Mike Matheson is shouldering a great deal of the defensive responsibilities for this team. He leads the team in defensive zone starts. He has 21 and all these stats are at 5 on 5. 
He leads the team in defensive zone starts. He's got 21. Only about 27% of his starts where, you know, he's starting at a face-off, only 27% of those are in the offensive zone, which means he is eating a ton of really challenging starts because he's he's starting at a, at a place of, not of disadvantage, but of advantage for his opponent. Um, and even with that, he leads the team in, in uh, of course, for a very powerful uh, or a very uh, indicating uh, possession metric, 54.3%. So while he's on the ice, the Canadians at five on five are controlling possession, which is saying something considering like what we saw in the Vancouver game where they just got completely filled in from a possession standpoint. Same for the Calgary game. Um, he leads the team in scoring chances for um, expressed as a percentage at 50%. It's not great that the high watermark for this team is, is a player with 50% of the scoring chances because it also means you're giving up. 50% of the scoring chances. Um, but it's that's another reflection of the Habs' like, overall pace since Matheson has gotten into the lineup. The, the, the level of play has decreased um, and diminished considerably since he started. And that's not to say that they got worse because of him. It's just, you know, it, it, him coming into the lineup shifted a lot of things around defensively. Um, so, you know, I think it's just a bunch of things trying to make you know, a bunch of players trying to make different positions work, as well as just the Canadians finally regressing back to normal. Um, speaking of regression, PDO is sort of a, 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 a stat that indicates luck a lot of the time. Um, essentially, it's just, it's your on-ice shooting percentage and your on-ice save percentage combined. Um, he, his uh, PDO is uh, 935, usually, uh, you know, around one is... You know, you're, you're getting probably about as, you know, you're not getting lucky one way or the other. You just, that's, that's sort of just how your, how your stats roll out. Um, his, his 935 is second only to Joel Edmondson. Um, and, and mostly that's because he's getting absolutely killed in on ice save percentage. So when Mike Mathis is not, it, when Mike Matheson is on the ice, the Canadians goaltenders for whatever reason have a really difficult time stopping the puck. Um, it's the second lowest on the team since he started playing. Um, when Mike Matheson is on the ice at five on five, the goalies have an 849 save percentage. Um, I know there was a lot of times when, um, when Matheson first started where he, him and Edmondson were on the ice and they were just giving up a goal on their first shift. Um, you know, so th those things will happen as a, as a guy tries to get ready or tries to, you know, get used to playing with a new team. Um, that 849 is second only to Harris. It's the second lowest on ice save percentage. Harris is getting 813 goaltending from, from his goalies when he's on the ice at 5-on-5. Five five. Um, but when Harris is on the ice, the Canadians shoot at, like, over 16% for whatever reason. Like, that's that's why PDO is a luck stat. And even looking at PDO on its face, it doesn't give you the the true extent of what things are, uh, are happening when these players are on the ice. Um, despite having a pretty high... Um, high danger chances four percent. You know he, when he's on the ice, the Canadians are um, they're still getting beaten in high danger chances. When he's on the ice, his team controls about forty nine percent of them. Um, sec second on the team to David Savard of all people, which is surprising to me. Um, and especially high percentage of those goals are going in. Um, about twenty one percent of the high danger chances. Um, that the Canadians uh, give to their opponents while Matheson is on the ice, go in. So, you know, 
I wanted to look at like how that compared to his teammates. Like how does that compare to the other defensemen on this team? And it's certainly above average. The team average is about 15.3, 15.4%. Um, so that is 15.4% of high danger chances against end up in the back of their net. And, you know, so what you can see from that is that 21% of, you know, that's Matheson's number. It's higher than average on the team. Um, but it's not the highest. Harris and Gooley both have the highest mark at 23%. Um, so they're getting beat on a lot of high danger chances. They're just not getting that, that high danger save from their goaltender. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's some room here for the, you know, the results aspects of this, the, the goals against and the goals for to increase for Mike Matheson. But all of the, the kind of other underlying numbers that are generally indicative of a player who's doing pretty well, um, especially relative to the rest of his team, which right now the Canadians are really struggling to stop any kind of offensive push from their opponents. Um, I think that, you know, he, it's really promising what we're seeing from him. Um, and I know that these numbers are incomplete because we've only seen him in nine games. Um, and you can't really get a perfect or even semi you know, relevant view of a player by looking at 19 games. Um, but these numbers are showing a, a Canadians team who are relying on Matheson to do a ton of the heavy lifting defensively. And you can see that in the way that he's developed. I, I don't have great numbers on like strength of matchups, but Montreal played Edmonton on this recent road trip. Um, I don't know if you guys know this Connor McDavid guy. He's pretty good. Um, and whenever, whenever McDavid was on the ice... Marty St. Louis wanted to get Matheson on there. So, and you can see it from the first shift of the game um, on natural stat trick, which is where I found all of those stats, by the way. They're fantastic. It's a really, it's a really, um, in, it's the most valuable tool <laughs> to like the average fan to just go in and learn things on your own. Um, but the first shift of the game, which the shift charts are all available on natural stat trick. Um, Caden Gooley's defensive pairing is out on the ice for that opening faceoff because the home team gets last change. They get to put out whoever they want after they find out who the Canadians put out. Shortly after Caden Gooley um, is on the ice, you can see they put Mike Matheson on right afterwards. Like they basically short shifted Gooley to get him away from McDavid. And at five on five, it worked. Um, only one of McDavid's four points. Um, was scored at five on five, and Matheson wasn't even the one on the ice for it because that was a really botched change. Um, Gooley and Savard were on the ice. Gooley made an outlet pass to Anderson, and he went off for for Kovacevic. Anderson, for whatever reason, just handed the puck back to the Oilers, and they came in on a rush. Um, and the Canadians just couldn't stay out of the box against Edmonton, and their penalty kill has a whole host of issues. But giving up like a hundred penalties or penalty kills to the Edmonton Oilers is not a recipe for success. But at 5-on-5, five five, putting Matheson up against McDavid was, one, the Canadians' plan, and two, it pretty much worked. So let's, let's contextualize all of that. Let's pull that all back together. Matheson is playing a lot. His coach wants to put him up against his opponent's best players, the McDavid's, the Dreisaitl's, those guys. He starts a ton of shifts in his own zone. And despite all that, the Canadians have better possession and scoring chance numbers when he's on the ice, as opposed to when he is not on the ice. The only knocks against him are his goaltender save percentage, which he really, I mean, he, you can limit some of those high danger chances and maybe get a more favorable save percentage from your goalie, but he can't really make saves for him. 
And his team shooting percentage is pretty low when he's on the ice at 5-on-5. Um, so I think it's hard to see right now because the Canadians have been just bleeding scoring chances and shots and shot attempts um, as a whole over this last stretch of games. It's probably the worst hockey they've played this season. And they're still managing to win games somehow because it's the most random sport um, that, that, that is played professionally. But Matheson is playing some really strong hockey, and I do think that he is the pillar of this defense at the moment. I know Caden Gooley has been very strong. I love Caden Gooley. Um, but, you know, you look at some of those those underlying numbers, they're not they're not all that fantastic for Caden Gooley. And that's I'm not saying that, you know, he's, you know, floundering out there. Quite the opposite. I think he's doing particularly well for his age. Like, he's exceeding that expectation, even still looking at the numbers that he's putting up. Um, now... I said all these really nice things about Mike Matheson um, with the caveat that those are all five on five. The power play is an entirely different story. I don't personally think, and we see it on a nightly basis, I don't think that his skill set lends itself to being used on the first wave of the power play or on the power play in general. Um, I think Matheson's best and most used asset is his skating, which is something he can't really do while he's sitting at the top of the umbrella, just really his only options are pass to Caulfield or pass to Suzuki. Um, walking the blue line is a very particular skill that's really tough to find. You know, there aren't a ton of, like, it's not something that every number one defenseman can even do in this league. Um, you know, I think that, I, I think back to, and this is such a weird connection, but stay with me here. When Carl Haglin was on the Rangers, and that was like the peak of Carl Haglin's career, right? Other than when he went to the range, or when he went to the the Penguins, and he was a he played that role for them, and he was a good role player. Like the Carl Haglin experience in with the New York Rangers was very much him like really having his coming out party, um, and John Tortorella like refused to play him on the power play after a little while, and it became sort of a a, a thing. In New York, like why isn't Haglin playing on the power play? He should be there. And the, the, what Tor Tortorella ultimately came to is that he's too fast. He he wants to move too much, and that's not really what the power play is for. You know, I, I I've 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 often argued that the Canadians' power play relies too much on generating rush offense because their their inability to create any kind of cycle or any kind of you know movement in the offensive zone. Um, from a possession standpoint, has always failed. That's why one of their best moves is having Nick Suzuki come out of the zone and then come back in at full speed to like, you know, simulate a rush opportunity. Um, in the future, that guy for the Canadians who walks the line on that power play is almost certainly going to be Lane Hudson, who continues to absolutely dominate in his first NCAA season. He's a true freshman. He has 17 points in 14 games. We'll get to him a little bit later, but I, I think the goal is that he's going to be that guy, maybe as soon as next year, but at least in two years, at the most, I should say. But that leaves the Canadians sort of in a in a spot right now where they don't, I don't think they have a true number one power play quarterback at the moment. And I, I've seen enough of the Matheson experience so far to know that, like, I don't, I don't know that, that that's necessarily going to work. He might figure it out. He, maybe he just needs more reps. I'm not, you know, totally throwing that away at the moment. But I'm, I, I don't know why this coaching staff is so hesitant to try Jordan Harris in that position. Um, we got a tiny little piece of it 
um, in the last, or I think in the, the the Seattle game, um, I believe it was in the Vancouver game, where I think it was a four on four. I can't I can't recall exactly, but he set up Caulfield's goal. Uh, Jordan Harris, that is, he sets up Caulfield's goal by, you know, he's skating not at the blue line, but probably just above the slot. And he's moving from right to left, and he's looking shot, and he's looking shot, and he's looking shot, and then he just slides a perfect pass to Caulfield. Um, that's that's what when they're on the power play, that's sort of what they want a power play quarterback to do, because they have two really strong weapons on the wing, and I think that Jordan Harris is really, really, you know, tailor made for that role. I'm not saying that that you know that makes Jordan Harris better than Mike Matheson, which is why I think that whole you know who's the best defenseman on X team question is difficult. They all do different things, and I think that Jordan Harris's skill set would be a perfect match for that power play. And I'm going to continue to bang this drum until we see it and see that it either a works or b doesn't. But I don't understand what like the Canadians' reluctance to try anything new. And, you know, does that come back to Alex Burroughs? Does that come back to Marty St. Louis? Like, who's responsible for this? Um, but that's enough. I can't keep ranting about the power play every week because it's going to drive me insane. So I will leave on that. I've really liked Mike, Mike Matheson. The underlying numbers are really promising for him to, to, to be a number one guy for Montreal this season um, because, you know, you can keep leaning on Gooley. If you'd like, I, I do like playing Caden Gooley a ton just to see what you're getting out of him. And I think he's get I do think he's getting better as he plays. Um, even if the numbers aren't indicative of that, like you can see just in the way that he carries himself, he's improving, especially offensively. That Vancouver game, Gooley had a bomb of a pass to, to Suzuki for um, the, the goal that I mean, he fired it right into that goalie's glove and it still went in. What a weird game that was. Um, so I really like Matheson. I think he is the most valuable defenseman on the Canadians at the moment. Um, how long that stays that way, not sure. But that's that's just where that is. Um, all right. Uh, next, uh, we all saw Wright versus Slavkovsky on, on Tuesday, um, which predictably saw Wright score his first goal in the NHL. I thought Wright looked fantastic in the first period you can tell like I know he's probably you know saying eh, it doesn't I'm not that's not why I'm you know that's not firing me up I'm I'm just you know I'm here to I'm happy to play in the NHL I was happy to score a goal you could tell he was fired up like the, he, he was not going to lie his way out of that one um and I think with if if not for for Jake Allen he probably could have had two or three um but Slavkovsky probably gets the last laugh um his first of all his team won and that's really all that matters in, in the NHL. I think any player would tell you that. I think, you know, Shane Wright would have would have wanted the win there. Um, but on top of that, Slavkowski also got an assist on the game-winning goal. He knocked a puck loose on the boards. It bounced to Dvorak. He sets up Anderson for uh, the third goal of the game. The Canadian's second goal in seven seconds. Um, so, I mean, you know, a pretty good matchup. First matchup between those two players. We'll see it, I'm sure. I mean... Wright lives on is going to be playing on the West Coast most likely, so it doesn't seem like we're going to get it all that often. But I think you can call this first one uh, a close, a very close matchup between those two. But that's not really what I want to talk about here, because on this road trip, once again, Slavkovsky takes a really big hit, and once again, I think he really puts himself in that situation 
I, I hate the concept of, of blaming a player for getting hit um, when a lot of the time there's like nothing the, nothing the, hitted, the, the player who got hit could do. But we've been watching Slavkovsky for, for a little while now and it's becoming you know very aware that or very obvious to, to me that his awareness on an NHL ice surface is still a work in progress. Um, if I recall correctly, the international rinks used in Europe and, and at the Olympics are about 20 feet wider than the NHL rink. Um, and a lot of the instances where Slavkovsky has taken a bad hit or delivered a bad hit, hit, bad hit, he's been along the boards. Um, you know, the, the, the hit on Matt Luff of the Detroit Red Wings where he got suspended, um, that was a hit that I think Slavkovsky thought he probably had a little bit more leeway because of where he was on the ice. He, he thought, he, you know, he it, it, it looked very awkward. It was very awkward. He just had no idea where he was. And that last hit in Vancouver where he gets hit by Luke Shen on his way around the back of the net, um, you know, there's a few things here that, that point to lack of awareness. One, if you're on the ice against Luke Shen, you need to expect to be hit. Since the NHL started recording hits as a stat, no defenseman has more of them than Luke Shen. And I know, like, you know, Luke Shen, well, who the hell's that? Like, he's, he is the premier physical defenseman in the NHL. He just is. Um, that's something that Slavkovsky will likely learn over time. Like, he'll learn what players have reputations for more physical play. Uh, it's tough, again, he's playing against a West Coast team, although he's already seen, he's seen this Vancouver team before. Um but it's also something that I'm sure the coaching staff and the other players are aware of before the game starts. And it might be something that like they need to focus on with, with a young player like that who's never played in this league before. Like, hey, this guy is going to try to take your head off if you're out there. Um, so when you're on the ice against Shen, or really any time in the NHL, but certainly not against a guy like, like Luke Shen, you cannot do what Slavkovsky does on this play. He comes around the back of the net from the right side of it towards the left side. Um, he drops the puck to his center, Monaghan, behind the net. And then he follows his pass by looking backwards and over his shoulder. And even when he makes the drop pass, he's looking down at his skates. Um, and, you know, as he does that and he's looking over his, I think it was his right shoulder, he, Shen just pops him with a clean hit. Um, it's shoulder to chest slash shoulder to shoulder. Um, Slavkovsky stays down for a few seconds, both on his stomach. Then he gets up on one knee. Then he skates off next to the trainer. Um, I, I think it most likely just knocked the wind out of him. Like, you know, it, it seemed like he just, it, it looked like he was skating and he skated into a telephone pole, <laughs> you know, like he just, he got, he got lit up. Um, he did leave the game for a little bit, looked pretty pissed that he had to leave. Um, most players do. Um, I, I'm not sure what happened. I don't know if it's been made clear, likely a concussion spotter or member of the training staff just acting proactively. He did return to the game. He's looked fine since. Um, but it's no doubt a concerning trend that like a player of his size is still getting popped that hard that often. There should, however, be a high level of confidence that this can get fixed. Um, for starters, he's very young. He's the youngest player in the NHL right now, playing in a league uh, he, is, he has never played in, playing on an ice surface he is only just starting to understand. Um, and that 20 feet is a, is a big, it's a big difference. It's, it's a major part of development that we hear, hear constantly of, 
you know, um, players coming over from Europe and needing to understand how that ice surface works. Um, and on top of, you know, just the natural progression of, of a player learning how to play on this ice surface, Montreal has a really passionate guy working with these players um, to help them develop in Adam Nicholas. And I've been beating this drum for a while because I very much believe that this is the kind of person and the kind of role and the kind of instruction that has been needed with this this organization for years. And it's just been it's it's been sorely mismanaged in the past. But, you know, I am a big fan of the way Nicholas sees the game. Um, one of the things that's always stuck with me was an interview he did for a podcast called Next Shift back in 2021. Um I've talked. I I did a full breakdown of it on this show because when when Nicholas was hired, because I just I found it to be um, really insightful. Not only to get an, a glimpse of what he finds important, but to just understand. Like I learned a whole lot about the game of hockey just from listening to him speak. Um, and he pointed out that from a motor skills perspective, the difference between first liners and fourth liners in the NHL is not very large. It's it's you know the difference. In, in Nicholas's estimation is, and I'll quote him here, um, timing elements, understanding the playing surface, and understanding how to relocate to a positive setting to use the tools you built at a high frequency. So it's the, it's, it's, he thinks that the, the, the biggest part of, of the game in, you know, advancing from, you know, just an NHLer to being an elite player, part of that is understanding the playing surface. And we talk about, development of hockey players we almost never talk about understanding the ice surface because of course it's it's important but it kind of goes without saying right like you never say that a a baseball player like a a shortstop needs to figure out the diamond like they know like it, it, it goes without saying um but nicholas sees that understanding of the ice surface as the foundation for turning nhl players into elite players and not only that because once you then understand the playing surface you know how to relocate to a, to a place, as Nicholas says, relocate to a positive setting to use the tools you built at a high frequency. You know, not just not just like coming off the boards and finding a soft spot in the offensive zone and using your wrist shot to beat a guy, but being able to do that with consistency, right? It's one of the things that I like, think that like Cole Caulfield does particularly well is relocating to a positive setting to use his tools, which is his wrist shot. How, like, how often do we see Cole Caulfield get hit really hard? I don't think we we really do. He took one big hit in the Vancouver game, I think in the Seattle game, that he, he pops right back up. So, you know, I, I'm not too concerned about that. But it's it's generally not a trend for him. And the reason is he's really good at avoiding contact. He's really good at still being an effective player where he's not like, you know, he's not, you know, a perimeter player in the sense that, like, you know, your uncle would get upset at, like, William Nylander for not going hard to the net, you know, but, like, he, he knows how to, how to position himself. He always seems to find the soft spot in coverage. That's just one aspect of understanding the playing surface, but the other half of it is understanding how much time you have to make a play. How much time do I have to do this before Luke Shen shows up, before Victor Hedman shows up? You know, I think that that's going to be something that, um, you know, Slavkovsky works on with Nicholas. Um, and I, I believe that they are entirely fixable, you know, based on what Nicholas believes in, like that that's something that that could be taught. Nicholas seems like a guy who's tailor made to work with a player like Slavkovsky. It's almost like when they hired Nicholas, they already had an idea they were going with Uri Slavkovsky should they win the draft lottery. Um, 
So, you know, all of this to say, I think Slavkovsky's become far more effective since he moved up to the second line with Monaghan and Anderson. Um, you know, the skill peaks out every so often, a little bit more often now that he's playing with more skilled players and he's playing more, period. Um, and But once he develops that foundation of his game and he understands, like, how much time he has, how much space he has, I think he's going to be really well on his way to becoming an effective forward in the NHL. Um, but you kind of have to hope that he figures out, you know, at least the self-defense aspect of this really soon, you know, so he can avoid some serious injury, um, you know, this early in his career. Um, you you don't want a, um, you don't want like an Eric Lindros situation where that's a massive guy who just like, he, 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 it, his career was just taken away from him from injuries. You really want to avoid that sort of thing. Um, but that's all I have on Slavkovsky. Speaking of injuries, the Canadians um, have a ton of them right now. They've been relatively lucky to start the the season. Um, the guys who guys who have been out have been mostly bottom six forwards. Armia, Druin, and Hoffman have kind of like traded being on on the on the IR. I think Druin and Hoffman are still there. Um, and you know, if you want to include Byron, although he hasn't been a, a factor for a long time. Um, but now things are getting a bit hairy for the Canadians when it comes to injuries. Um, those, these are starting to pile up, uh, especially at forward. Brennan Gallagher's out at least the next two weeks um, from uh, from Monday, December 5th. To this point, I don't think he's been put on... Uh, I don't think he's been put on IR. I'm going to check because it is after 5 p.m. Um, and I, if he's out for two weeks, you'd think the Canadians would put him on IR... Um, in order to, uh, you know, save cap space, save a roster space, be able to bring somebody up. But to this point, it doesn't look like that's happened. Um, I wonder if that will come out over the next day or so now that they're back in Montreal and recalls could be a little easier. I think they're also waiting to hear from another player who's injured in Sean Monaghan, um, who's out with a lower body injury. He's on his way, you know, he stayed with the Canadians through the road trip, um, I think this one probably hurts them the most. He was apparently wearing a protective boot on his foot throughout the Western road trip. Like he was walking in a boot. Um, he played in Calgary in his, you know, in his return to the Saddle Dome. And he played in Edmonton. And he was playing in the Vancouver game. And he left early. He did not play in Seattle. Um, if he can't go against LA on Saturday, not only are you down another forward, you're down a center. So then that's sort of where I think maybe the Canadians are waiting to see how long Monaghan's going to be out before they make a move. Um, but, you know, I think they're kind of well-positioned to deal with this given their abundance of natural centers on the roster currently. Um, one thing you could do is call up uh, Jesse Yelonen. He's got 18 points in 23 games with a rocket. Um, you, would, you could take Doc off the top line, have him center the second line, and then rearrange your wingers. Um, slotting Elonen in probably in the third or fourth line. Um, or you can call up Anthony Richard, who's been sort of a revelation in Laval. Um, he's a 25-year-old. He's got two games of NHL experience. He's like Montreal's Matthew Phillips. Um, 25 points in 23 games, 15 uh, goals so far this season. So, and Richard Richard can play center if you want. You could take Doc off the top line and put him on the wing, put Richard on the wing as well. Um, so there are options there. But it's certainly not ideal for Monaghan, who's been playing some really nice hockey this season. Um, you have to hope it's a minor injury. Um, but it's concerning to me that the Canadians had him play three games on a road trip in December while he was in a walking boot. Like, that's like... 
like that should be playoff series stuff. And I know like that's even that's kind of gross to say, but that's hockey's going to hockey like that. That's just what this is. And I don't like it. I don't like hearing that these guys are playing through injuries where like it's difficult for them to walk, let alone, you know, beat out an icing call or let alone block a shot like the one Caden Gooley blocked against Calgary. Um, so there are options there with, with Monaghan going out. We're still kind of waiting. By the time you're listening to this, it might be entirely obsolete, um, but more to come there. And then lastly, David Savard is out with an upper body injury. He missed the Vancouver game and the Seattle game. Um, look, we, we we rag on Savard a lot, um, but those are going to be tough minutes to replace. Um, and looking at the Matheson numbers, Savard shows up favorably in a lot of those metrics. So there's still no timetable. I'm sure the Canadians aren't dying to give one until they absolutely need to. Um, it does, however, kind of take... Um, Kovacevic and Harris and, and Jackai, it shortens that, um, it shortens that rotation for them. They played with seven defensemen with Weidman pulling into the lineup, but you know, it, it, it could be an opportunity for one of them to step up and, and really make a difference. Kovacevic obviously scored his first goal of his NHL career against Seattle. So, you know, I mean, it wasn't, <laughs> I mean, in his mind, I'm sure it's his first NHL goal. It's going to be a beauty. But that puck, the goalie had a clean view at it, and it was uh, not a not a great shot. Um, but anyway, um, on top of that, Duran and Hoffman remain on on IR, so really no changes there. Luckily, the Canadians have some time off before their next game, um, so they can afford to wait this out before making a decision. If I had one critique, it would be that you know. You probably want to get an AHL call up into some practices before the game on Saturday, um, but that's not something that's absolutely critical at this point. So it's not even really worth, um, you know, getting bent out of shape about. So, like I said, some adversity ahead for the Canadians, um, but we'll see how they handle it. Right? This is why they play the games. Um, all right, let's get into last segment here: some building blocks and who we are sending back to the drawing board. Um, I like to start with the negative so we can finish with the positive. So we'll head to the drawing board first. And the first thing I'm sending back is the entire TSN regional broadcast. I admit this has nothing to do with the Canadians. And I've already ranted enough about the schedule. Which seems like a silly thing to argue about at this point. But the, the, the TSN broadcast has been a complete mess the entire season. From the sound just completely disappearing for extended periods of time, the picture cuts out, and I know I'm on. I'm getting the TSN regional broadcast through ESPN Plus, living in the states. Um, but like, it's been like from a technical standpoint, really tough. the The lack of replays is absurd. So that Shen hit on Slavkowski that I talked about for a very long time. TSN never showed a replay of it. It happened live. There was the fight afterwards where Jackai fights um, Luke Shen. They kind of each throw a little punch and then Jackai falls over. They showed Slavkovsky getting off the ice. They went to commercial. They came back for a play or two for the Canadians power play. And then they went back to commercial and they never showed the hit, which was like the most pivotal part of the game to that point. Like there are on a nightly basis, we just do not get replays that that matter in the course of a game. It's very frustrating. Um, and it's why, like, you know, the guys who create gifts on Twitter, like Scott Matla and Matt Drake, 
both of have eyes on the prize. Like those guys are invaluable at this point because like we never know what what highlights we're going to get shown during the broadcast. Um, one guy who's not getting sent back to the drawing board from the TSN broadcast is Brian Mudrick. I he's the play by guy, play by play guy. I think he's phenomenal. I really like the way he calls a game. Um, you can tell he's very passionate about what he does. Um, it's it's typically the guy sitting next to him that is very difficult at times. Um, Mike Johnson is obviously, like, I think he's everyone's favorite sitting next to Brian Mudrick. If we had our way, he'd be there every game. Um, but, like, whenever we go out west, you know we're getting Craig Button, and you know he's just going to absolutely lose his gourd over the silliest things. What game? Was it the... Was it the... Calgary game perhaps it was the Vancouver game I think it was the Vancouver game the first shift Armia is coming down the boards his teammates are changing he there's a guy separating Armia you know there's a defenseman coming back and he, he kind of just throws a wrist shot on from the the from like you know the face-off circle gets a face-off whatever it is it, it is the game is not two minutes old and Button is absolutely screaming about Yoel Armia not taking the puck to the net. Like, I, I understand, like, if it was, like, late in the game and they're down a goal. His teammates are changing, and he's just losing it. In the Seattle game, every time Gooley lost or broke his stick and a right-handed player handed him a stick, he was just losing it about, like, why are you giving him that stick? He's left-handed. He can't use the right-handed stick. And, like... Brian Mudrick sitting next to him is like, you know, well, you know, it's probably better than nothing. He's like, no, it's not better than nothing. He was just, he is so distracting. Like hockey broadcasts, we've talked a lot recently about how like distracting the board ads are and the ads on the ice, like the, all of the CGI ones that they put in or the ads on the end board glass. And while those are all distracting, and you will get no complaints from me there when people are, are upset about those, they need to go away. Button is more distracting than any of those things combined. Like, I find him to be a detriment to every broadcast that he's on. It's really tough to listen to. Um, oh, and he was just absolutely dogging on, on uh, Christian Dvorak towards the end of the, the Seattle game. Like, just saying he was making soft plays. I don't understand. Like, I'm every player in the league should thank their lucky stars that Craig Button is not a coach because he would be insufferable to play for. Um, anyway, that's enough of that. TSN, fix the broadcast. Um, one more person being sent back to the drawing board, that is Joel Edmondson. Look, he just looks bad. He looks bad. The numbers are bad. Um, I really think Petrie was the, the, the Edmondson whisperer um, because now that he's gone... He's like hardly even passable on most nights. The cross check to Hyman's head um, was really dumb. And then he took zero responsibility for doing the thing that essentially got him his contract in Montreal. He's like, oh, well, I didn't mean for the stick to ride up. Yeah, but you did mean to cross check him. You cross you cross checked him to a, a three year deal. Like that's that's how you got this contract. Um, there was a lot of buzz this week that I think is ultimately nothing that potentially Edmonton could be interested in acquiring Joel Edmondson. Edmondson and Edmonton would be terrible, um, but just from a, a phonetics standpoint. Um, Arpin Basu concluded, this was on a podcast with Ryan Rashog, the uh, Oilers beat reporter for TSN. Um, Basu concluded that 
Montreal would probably expect a first-round pick in return since he and Schrott would have a similar market, and you'd get two playoff runs out of Edmonton. Um, I don't. Everyone took that as Edmonton is trading a first-round pick for uh, Joel Edmondson. I don't. I don't necessarily think that that's imminent or wise for Edmonton to do. But that's never stopped Ken Holland before. At any rate, it's just not fun watching um, UL, UL, Joel Edmondson play hockey, especially in his own zone. Um, in the offensive zone, sometimes he shows some fun stuff. The the goal against Chicago was fun. Where he was just going to the net and he had his stick down. And his assist on the Pitlick goal was fun. Um, but yeah, he's just most of the time a net negative when he's out there. Um, all right, well, let's move to the building blocks. We've got three things here. Um, first off, Lane Hudson. Um, he's going to be a building block forever until he retires because I think he might be the most consequential Habs prospect since, like, Subban and Pacioretty and McDonough, but that one sucks. Um, Hattie, K on, uh, Hattie K Scouting on Twitter, who you should all be following, by the way, if you're not already, go follow Hattie, um, said at the end of November that Hudson is currently on pace for the best draft plus one NCAA point-per-game pace of the last 25 years. He's already matched Adam Fox. He's already eclipsed Quinn Hughes for f- freshman goals. Um He's just Lane Hudson is is Lane Hudson is him. That's it, right? Like he's just he's going to be that guy. Um at least you hope that he pans out to that. But if he does if he's anything like what we're seeing from him in the NCAA, it is impossible to not be excited. Um next I have Josh Anderson as a uh, building block for the Canadians. Look, I think I think that, you know, myself included most folks on Habs Twitter are particularly tough on Anderson. The cap hit, the contract, all that paired with the fact that he's not all that dynamic of a player. He skates fast, he shoots hard, he hits, but like asking him to make a nice pass is like pulling teeth. Um, however, one of the Canadians' biggest needs right now is secondary scoring and, scoring, and as of late, he's providing that. He's got goals in two straight, including the late go-ahead goal in Vancouver that ultimately didn't matter because they lost in overtime. And the game-winning goal on Seattle against Seattle on Tuesday, he's on pace at the moment for nearly 24 goals. It's like 23.9. Um, so if he hits that, if I think if, even if he hits 23, I think that would be bit his best goal-scoring total um, in his time in Montreal. I think he's topped out at 21. Um, Suzuki and Caulfield have been outstanding, but it's important that they get help from other guys throughout that lineup. Anderson, with the cap hit that he has, needs to be that guy. Um, you know, forget the whole, they're trying to, you know, they should be losing games. Forget all of that. Like from a, what do you do here standpoint? Like Anderson, that, that is what he needs to do. Like, I don't, you know, they're using him as a penalty killer now, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. You're, you're showing, you know, that he might provide value in another, um, another part of his game. I don't mind that at all, but like, no, just like I said that, you know, a few shows ago when I was talking about Mike Hoffman and how some of his underlying numbers look actually nice and his defensive numbers look nice. No one's trading for Mike Hoffman to play defense. No one's trading for Josh Anderson to play defense either. They're trading for these guys because they're big, at least Anderson's big, but they score goals. So he's got to be doing that and he's doing it. So give him credit there. Uh, And lastly, Suzuki and Caulfield, like what a week for these guys. Um, Doc has gone kind of quiet on that wing, which is why I've, you know, earlier when I was talking about 
you know, changes that might be made with, with Monaghan going out, maybe it's best to put him back to center to see if he can get more engaged. Um, but Suzuki and Caulfield are just doing special things seemingly every night. Um, and I think along with, with Lane Hudson, every episode where I do this segment, you can put Suzuki and Caulfield here unless told otherwise. These guys are the Montreal Canadiens at the moment. This is their team. Um, the stuff we saw from them this week, particularly in that Seattle game, um, you know, the, the Caulfield goal where Suzuki picked off the puck in the offensive zone and he just seemed to slow time down in order to fake a shot and then pass it off to Caulfield, who's in the spot Caulfield is always in. Um, to, there was one play that ultimately didn't result in, in a goal, but Suzuki was coming into the offensive zone he deked the guy out, and then he was spun around and like passed the puck through his legs over to Caulfield, who was able to get a shot off. Um, they're just they're just doing ridiculous things out there. Um, I I don't know that I've ever seen two players like this um, in my lifetime in Montreal. You know, two young players who are coming along doing this sort of thing. Um, you know, we try <laughs> they tried to push Gallagher and Galchenyuk on us in the 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 mid twenty tens, but that the. the this is just an entirely different feeling with these two. Um, and that's all I have for this week. So the Canadians are back at it on Saturday night against the LA Kings. Um, and then I believe it's Monday night against the Flames. Um, and because I don't think I'm going to get in another episode by then, um, that Monday night game against the, the Calgary Flames, I'll be on uh, Game Over with Andrew Berkshire. Um, so come check it out. It's, it's live streamed on YouTube. Get in the chat. Andrew reads the chat. And uh, we try to have a good time. I always really enjoy our conversations. Um, I hope that you guys do too. And I hope you had fun listening to this one. So thanks, uh, as always, for your time um, and for checking this out. Um, the music you hear right now and the music you heard at the beginning of the show is Inside by Fred Mugg. Check out the description for a link to his Bandcamp page where you can see the rest of his stuff. All right, guys, take care. We'll talk soon. Bye. Bye.